Well, good morning. I'd love to welcome you as well. Add my welcome to Matt's. It's so good to see you guys this morning. Uh, there's Bibles in front of you. If you don't have one uh, this morning, we're going to dig into Titus 3. And you'll be helped if you can follow along with us there. Uh, in the Bible in front of you, we're going to be on page 998. So go ahead. We'll be reading that here shortly. Recently, in my family, uh, we just finished reading The Wing Feather Saga by Andrew Peterson. My girls loved this fascinating tale of a family and the coming of age of, of three children. Now, I'll, I'll tell you this, my wife insisted that I can give you no spoiler alerts. Um, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's really fun. But throughout the series of books, um, the true identity of the characters is realized. They're called to first flee and then face and fight their enemies to save their kingdom. As they navigate their way through both internal and external struggles, the best weapon in their fight is leaning into their true identity, ultimately allowing them to triumph in the end. This theme of identity, I think, is found often in a good story or a good movie. Um, it's even in the classic Lion King. Uh, if you recall Simba, the rightful heir and king, he's called to remember who you are. Thanks, James Earl Jones, for reminding us. But the book of Titus is here for the exact same reason. It has the same goal. It was written for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. We saw over the last couple of weeks in chapter two that we are to teach what accords to sound doctrine, with sound doctrine, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So what does that look like? Christians, those who uphold good doctrine, that uphold the gospel, are ones who become zealous for good works. This is our identity. And yet, if we read our Bibles, all throughout the Bible, and our lives as Christians, we're confronted with our failure to remember. I know I am, and I dare say you probably are too. And so today in chapter 3 of Titus, we're going to look at how Paul instructs Titus and us to remember. What's, what's great about this text is actually many commentators believe Paul is actually quoting a hymn or a creed, something that's easy to remember, to recall, to bring to mind, uh, to remember what their identity is. They needed that in the early church and we need it today. So we're going to be looking at three points this morning of what we need to remember. First, we're going to remember our mission. Second, we're going to remember our condition. And thirdly, we're going to remember our salvation. Would you please stand with me, if you're able, in honor of God's word as I read from Titus chapter 3. This is the word of the Lord. 
remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we've been seeing all throughout Titus and all throughout the Bible that the goal of the Christian life outlined by Paul is to remember the gospel. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. These things are excellent and profitable for people. We will see in a bit the heart of the gospel, but it's important to get the order right. It's kind of like a recipe. I'm, I'm not a great cook or baker, but I do know this. You follow the recipe, and if you go out of order, things don't always turn out very well. I can testify to that. Maybe you can too. When we remember the gospel, it equips us to pursue good works. Christians are called here to do good. Pursue good, do good, pursue good works. Insist on these things so that those who've believed in, may, in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So we don't just talk about the gospel. We actually act from the gospel. This is our mission. This is where Paul starts our text today. I wonder how you would define the good life. I think in our culture it's very clear. The good life is a self-fulfilled life. It's getting what we want when we want it. Or maybe said a different way, let us be the best me. The only person that matters in that equation is me. The good life. Going on a good vacation. Getting that degree. That job. That spouse. That house. Those kids. That balance in the bank account or investment account that many friends, that much influence, that much power, those great grandkids. But Christians are those who think of the good life differently. They stress the gospel to live out the gospel. 
Our mission is to be ready for every good work, verse 1, and to devote ourselves to good works. It's not the good life defined by our culture, but it is the good life defined by God, for God, and the good of others. We're actually not trying to make a name for ourselves. We are trying to make much of Jesus. So our mission, and that which we should be remembering, is to live in the world but not of the world. We are salt and light to the world around us. And we call all to repentance and faith. Though we know, as we talked about last week, not all will believe. So in light of our mission, Paul doesn't give us an exhaustive list, but he gives us a couple things to focus on. Ways that we can practically live out the gospel. He says here, to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. Submission and obedience. I wonder how that sounds to you. I think at first pass, I think we kind of put our hands up and say, but wait, that can't be right. Have you seen the, the things that people do when they have power? They're in control. The governments, the rulers and authorities. But submission and obedience in the Christian life, this is the transformed life. This is what the gospel produces in those who follow Jesus. And it's not optional. It's not only to follow your rulers and authorities when your political party, whichever one you favor, is in office or in control. It's not just when your candidate gets elected. But we're called to eagerly work towards submitting to our rulers and authorities. I think it's helpful to reflect back on the context here. In Crete, the Christians and, and the churches that are in Crete. Look, look at chapter 1, verse 12. One of their own, Cretans, a prophet, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. One Greek historian wrote this of the culture in Crete. Quote, it was impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. So to submit and obey is not a simple task. It's not a simple command. And let's be clear, governments, even the best, are made of sinful people. We don't have to look very far in our own history to see that the failures of our own governments, both in the promotion of slavery and Jim Crow laws and the terrible injustice towards our African-American brothers and sisters, but also the ongoing promotion of abortion of ones who are made in the image of God. Paul, in a different section of scripture, Romans 13, tells us that every authority on earth actually comes from God. It only is given that authority as a received authority from God. And the purpose of that authority is twofold, to promote good and punish evil. And so that is what he has in mind here. We want to promote good and punish evil. We want to submit and do good. That's our mission. It requires us as we've seen in Titus, to be self-controlled. He's already instructed us in that. 
early in chapter two. And it doesn't mean just going along with anything that the government says or does, right? It's not blindly following the government. If it contradicts the commands of God, then we shall not obey. But it does mean, friends, that we can follow the authorities God has set over us because we know the experiences of this life, whether good or bad, are not our ultimate end. It's not the final word. Nothing is at risk of being lost because the gospel is true. So the second application here in remembering the mission in how to live out the gospel is verse two. Speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling. Be gentle, be considerate to all. So there's two negatives and two positives. Don't slander. Avoid fighting. What motivates us to slander and to fight? We're being defensive. Maybe we're being jealous or envious. We feel like something's at risk of being lost. And so therefore we want to put somebody else down or we want to fight. We want to bow up. But that is not what we're called to as Christians. That's not our mission. This isn't what should be defining the people that follow Jesus. We know that the stakes are high. But we know that Jesus rules over all and nothing of eternal significance can be lost. So avoid slander and fighting. What should we do positively? We should be considerate and show humility. Ultimately, follow in the footsteps of Christ. Jesus was considerate, was humble. And the only way to do that is to put the needs of others before our own. And in the gospel, all of our needs are met. And so therefore, we can serve like Christ served instead of being served. So our mission is to model our lives after Christ. So I think there's two errors that we want to avoid here. I think when we think about our mission, I think we may be tempted as Christians to withdraw from the world, to stay in our little bubble. It's a defensive mechanism, right? It's a safe place. Or we may be tempted to look down on the world as if we're better than the world. So we want to be careful, friends, not to be smug or superior. Neither is true of those who follow Christ. In fact, verse 3 reminds us that we were the exact same as the world. And we should remember our condition because it's going to help us fulfill our mission. So the good work, the good life, the mission for the Christian, we are to pursue obedience. We are to pursue submission. We are to pursue gentleness and caring towards all people. This is what the gospel will produce in us. So remember your mission. Secondly, we're going to remember our condition. This brings us to verse 3. I think after reflecting on the life Paul calls us to in verse 1, I think we need to ask ourselves, 
How can we accomplish this mission? We're called to this mission. We're called to pursue good works. How can we do that? And unfortunately, if we look at our credentials and our resume in verse 3, we see ourselves getting further and further away from the mark. So in one sense, as I already mentioned, our condition actually helps us to relate to the world, helps us to relate to those who are lost, who do not trust in God. But in another way, it does nothing to commend us before God. So Paul here in verse 3 gives us just a clear picture, a clear view of the human condition. And friends, you can look around this room today, you can look all throughout history, and anybody who is ever to come in the future, and this is true of them, except for Jesus. This is our common humanity. But I want to ask you, what is it that you like to promote about your resume? What is it that you are tempted to lean on and trust in? Here's the resume that describes all of us apart from Christ. We ourselves were once foolish and disobedient. So our minds do not think of God. Our hearts and our wills are corrupt. It's it's our internal control. What is it focused on? It's focused on us. It's self-seeking and self-serving. It's not mindful of God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And that's how every one of us acts before God changes us. So internally, we don't want anybody to tell us what to do other than ourselves. We want to be in command of our own lives. Even worse, read further in verse 3. We are led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. It's, it's, it's even worse. It's not only corrupt from the inside, but we have outside forces that are pressing in on us in our lives. And we have no control over them. It's the brokenness of the world. It's the evil one in his attacks. It's, it's being led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures. I, I wonder if, if you can identify with that, friends. This isn't saying that we're as bad as we could be. Uh, I think we have a danger of comparing ourselves to other people, and we can make ourselves feel really good if we compare ourselves to a low enough standard. But the God of the Bible holds us to his standard of holiness, not ours. So what impact do these internal and external forces have on our lives? Well, we spend our days in malice and envy. We want bad for other people. We want the good in their lives to be removed. We want it for ourselves. And what does that lead to? That leads to hating one another and being hated by others. This is our condition. And we are to remember it before we can get to the good news of the gospel. I wonder, how much do you reflect on our condition 
Do you remember the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18? If you recall, it's a king, it's a story, it's a parable that Jesus tells about a king who had a servant. He owed a really insurmountable amount to his king, and it was going to be impossible for him to repay. The king was going to sell him because he couldn't pay, but you know what he did? He turned to the king and he said, have mercy on me. And you know what the king did? He had mercy. He forgave him. And an amazing sum of money that he would never otherwise be able to pay. And so when he, t- he had his freedom, he went out. And it goes on to say he had a servant. And this servant owed this forgiven servant a small amount of money. And how did he react? He overwhelmingly rebuked the servant, imprisoned him, and said, you owe me all this money before I will let you out. And it was such a meager sum. This servant would have been able to pay him back. The word got out because it was astounding. And it got back to the king. And the king said, what are you doing? He rebuked the forgiven servant. And he said, you will now be imprisoned again because you did not forgive You have to pay back all that you owe. Friends, that is our condition. We have a double standard. We hold the bar so low for ourselves so that we can feel good about ourselves and we hold others to a super high standard that they could never meet. That's our condition. Ultimately, sin deceives us. That's what he's getting at. There's this great illustration um, somebody shared with me. I'm I'm not sure the original source, but um, there's a cartoon. Actually, uh, I looked it up. Dr. Seuss drew cartoons back in World War II, for any of you who didn't know that. Uh, And there's one that he drew of Hitler. And he's walking in, and he's got this big bear, three or four times his size, that represents Russia. And he's dragging it by this rope, and he's straining and sweating. And on the wall, there's all these animal heads of all the countries that Hitler had conquered. And he's straining with all his might. And and the idea is that Hitler was deceived. He thought, oh, I've got this bear right where I want him. And the bear, Russia, was about to overtake him. That was what led to his defeat in World War II. And so it is with our sin. We think we have it on a leash, that we have it under control, that we can tame it. And the reality is, it has us both inside and out. So compared to this mission that God has given us to live out the gospel, to love God and love others, we do the exact opposite. And we do it naturally. It's common to all of us. As Christians, we don't have to hide sin. We don't have to minimize it. We actually belittle God when we do those things. We fail to love others. And we fail to show respect when we don't acknowledge our own sin. 
So let us not do that, friends. Let us remember our condition. Let us remember our mission so that we can remember our great salvation. Before I go to our third point, I want to talk to all the children among us. As it is Father's Day, and Matt prayed for us fathers, I want you to know that this week I I have prayed for you all. Uh, You are such wonderful gifts to us, obviously to your dads and to our church. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And it's a treat to do life together with you. And you know, uh, ultimately, we want good for you. But, you know, even the best earthly dads are in the same situation that you're in, in our sin and in need of a Savior. But I want you to know, no matter how good or bad your earthly dad is or has been, that we are a mere shadow, a mere representation of our Heavenly Father. And he loves you, and he's calling you to acknowledge your sin and turn to what he offers you in Christ. So I want to commend that to you today. As you are honoring your dad and and thankful for him, which you should be, I pray that you would remember that you have a heavenly father that loves you and sent his son for you if you would turn and trust in him. These next couple minutes, I'm going to use some big words, but they're not too big. And I pray that you will be helped by this and will come to understand how great a salvation that we have. So now that we've looked at the mission that we have in our condition, the question remains, how can we reconcile these realities? I wonder how it lands on you, friends, to think of our mission and our condition. I think if we are honest and and do an assessment of ourselves, maybe you'll be tempted to discouragement or even despair. Look at the mess I've made of my life. Look at the ongoing struggle with sin. Look at the crushing blows of sin against me or the brokenness of this world. I, I feel the weight of all of that, friends. I bet you do too. And honestly, if it was just us, If it was just up to us and our own power, we would be helpless and hopeless because we couldn't accomplish what we're actually called to do. But friends, instead of despair, we are called to remember our salvation. Friends, this is the heart of God. We saw in verse 3, the life without grace. We saw ourselves, but God saved us. Verse five, God saves. This is such good news. It's such good news. 
But why? Why would he save, you may ask? Our text actually gives us three reasons. Let's look at them. God saves because of the goodness and loving kindness of God. Verse four. He saves because of his own mercy. Verse five. And he saves because of his grace. Verse seven. Can you feel the wave upon wave of grace? Loving kindness. Mercy. Our God loves sinners. He pursues us. And God is pursuing you today, friend. Even today. There is no God like our God. When other religions, friends, demand something from you, the God of the Bible provides for you. He's not far off. He draws near to the brokenhearted. He understands our frame. He knows what is true of us better than we know of it ourselves. He knows. And yet, every good thing that we have, every good gift comes from his hand. Oh, this is the great God we have. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God that knows our condition and our mission. And he says, I am going to save you and give you hope and give you power to fulfill what I've called you to do. This is amazing. We don't deny our condition from verse three. It is true. Anyone who has ever been saved knows they could not save themselves. Our condition was so bad, worse than we could even imagine. We couldn't save ourselves. The Bible says it this way. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. That we have hearts of stone. That we need to be born again. All of this language, it's saying the same things. We can't save ourselves. We need someone to save us. But you know, the God that we serve, the one true and living God, he had a plan of salvation before the world was even created. This wasn't just an afterthought or an oops or a, oh, I guess I'm resigned to helping these poor people. No, God had a salvation plan in his heart before the world began. He owes us nothing, that is true. And yet by his grace and mercy, he has given us everything that we need to have a relationship with him again. Oh, friends, this is such good news. The heart of God is at display in the way that he saves sinners like us. How did he do it? He's provided this way for a relationship. And while throughout the Old Testament, Matt preached last week, we see a God of grace and salvation, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He appeared. He didn't just stand back. He entered in. He sent his son to enter into our brokenness 
and our sin in this world to restore, to bring about a way of salvation. And yet, he entered the sinful world and he was without sin, the Bible said. God shows mercy that when we deserve punishment, he provided Jesus in our place. Look at me at, with me at verse 5. God saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Friends, don't lie to yourself and be fooled. There is nothing we offer, nothing that we could do to earn our salvation. But according to his own mercy, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified, we might become heirs. Justification, so first big word, right? Justification is the work of God through Jesus to satisfy our need for righteousness before God. God has to deal with sin. It is not a little thing that we sin against our creator. It's serious. But God is also both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Sin is serious. It demands justice. It demands a payment. And our justification was accomplished in Jesus, who was perfect, where we had failed. We deserve the penalty for our sin, and Christ took it on himself at the cross. And not only did he live perfectly and die the death that we deserved, he rose from the dead. Sin and death did not have the final word, and they do not now. Jesus rules now and will one day return to bring about the final redemption once for all. So God, our Savior, appeared, friends. It was costly for God to show mercy. It wasn't free or cheap, but he took the cost himself. That's our justification. And it was his good pleasure to do it for sinners like you and me. So without God's mercy, no one can stand before him. With it, no one and nothing can keep you from God. Let me say that again. Without his mercy, no one can stand before God. But with it, no one and nothing can keep you from God. That's the gospel, friends. That is such good news. But there's more. As I was meditating on this over the last week or two, it just stands out. You see the God the Father and his heart for sinners. You see the sending of the Son to sacrifice on the cross. And you see the Holy Spirit that is at work. There's something that goes along here with justification. How does justification actually get applied to us? It says here, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This regeneration, another big word, is just giving life to something that has died. It coincides with God's act of justification. You can't have one without the other. 
When God saves, we're given new life where we were once dead. And we can only have life if God justifies us and pays the penalty for our sin in Jesus. When God accepts the payment on our behalf, and when we trust in Jesus, turning from our sin and following him, we are made alive by the Spirit, and our standing before God is changed. We're actually heirs and co-heirs with Jesus. Friends, I, I wonder how that lands on you. I wonder if that seems too far in the past. I've been a Christian for a long time. But the thing that really stood out to me about the Holy Spirit is this and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Friends, whether today is the first day that you trust in Christ for your salvation, or you've been a Christian for 80 years, salvation being applied to you day in and day out is not something you graduate from. You don't move to, to the next grad level of Christianity. It is the gospel again and again and again. We sung, his mercies are new every morning. We need that for the rest of our lives until Christ comes back. And how do we get it? We get it through the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is at work. John, in John, Jesus says, I'm going to send you a helper. This helper is going to be the Holy Spirit. This Spirit resides with us to do the, the renovation from the inside out so that we would walk in newness of life, that we would walk in holiness, that we would walk in the mission that we've been called to. We don't have to do it in our own strength, in our own power. We can't, but with the Holy Spirit, we can. Friends, this is remembering our salvation. Our salvation is brought by the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's who God is. That's what he does. He has a heart for sinners. No matter what you've done, there is no exception to his grace. If you trust in him. This is the gospel. This is such good news. So friend, why should we run from our God? Why should we run from the one and only one who loves to save sinners? Don't run from him. There's no reason. Run to him. Stop running away. Come to him. All you are, who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. That's our call this morning. You can be saved. Friend, even today, you can be saved. Receive this loving kindness. Receive this mercy. Receive this grace. I wonder, our final application, I wonder, are there people in your life who help you to look at your condition and to remember the mission? 
who help you see sin in your life and help you fight it. That's why we exist as a church. That's why we covenant together. We commit to one another that we will point each other to Christ. That we will spur one another on to love and good deeds. That we will grow in holiness together. That's why every local church exists. We would invite you to get more involved here if you don't have a church home or or you've been away from the church for a long time. You cannot do this by yourself. Christianity is a community affair, and that's what the church is here for. We all need people reminding us of the gospel, and you doing the same for them. So friends, remember our mission. Remember our condition. The work we're called to as believers is no easier for some than others. And who we were before Christ is no better than any other person. And when we reflect on these things, these two realities, we will rejoice in seeing the heart of God in our salvation. These things that we should insist, they're excellent and profitable for people. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for this word this morning. This word that shows your heart, the heart of a God who loves sinners, who pursues sinners, who provided for sinners in Jesus, and who gives us now the Holy Spirit that we might be honest about our condition and that we might pursue our mission to honor you, to live out the gospel. You are our only hope in life and in death, and so we trust in you today. We stand on your promises and your mercy, your loving kindness, your grace. Thank you so much. May it never cease to overwhelm us with joy and the joy of our salvation. We thank you for all of this because you give it to us in Jesus' name. Amen.